Thank you, Lord Jesus, uh, for uh, this day. We thank you for the gospel that gives us hope, meaning to life. And we thank you that the scriptures bear witness to that gospel, to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, not according to opinion, but according to the Old Testament scriptures themselves, as Paul said. Bless us in this time. Give us grace. Uh, help us uh, to think clearly. In Jesus' name, amen. Jeremiah 31 says this. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is the church. This is not the academy. And I think that for me personally, when I do these kinds of things in my ministry, I like to set it within a theological context because either God had something to do with it or he didn't. It's pretty much that simple. But let me read you something from an academic, F.F. F. Bruce, a scholar, one of the greatest uh, British scholars of the 20th century who wrote a lot in this area of New Testament history. New Testament texts and canons. He has a famous book called The Books and the Parchments, and there's some material back there if you want to dialogue after church this morning. Quote, Bruce writes, No body of literature, we said in our introduction, has been subjected to such intensive critical analysis as New Testament writings. And the methods of criticism which confirm the historical inferiority of the apocryphal gospels and related material are the message which confirm the superiority of the New Testament writings. Bruce is not writing from a dogmatic perspective. He's simply writing as a historian. He's simply writing and trying to lay out the facts as they are. We all work with the same evidence. There's no such thing as a brute fact. All these facts require some explanation. Everybody has a presupposition about the facts as they're presented to them. Either they have theological ones or they have materialistic ones. That's kind of the way I see it. So I had a story to tell you, but then I read Stan Porter's story. Of course, Stan Porter does everything better than everybody else. So I want to read you a story, and then I'm going to show you a whole bunch of slides. I'm not going to talk about a lot of them. I kind of want you to feel what Bruce said here about no document being subjected to the kind of critical scrutiny and caretaking and collection of manuscripts and collating them and putting together New Testaments and those kind of things. So I want you to feel it in pictures. If you have a burning desire to ask a question, uh, grab Heidi and she'll let, you, she'll let you talk. Otherwise, I hope to leave a couple of minutes for questions. After talking about how the Gospel of Mark might have been written by Mark himself, he goes on to say, In another scene in another place, one of Paul's letters has arrived in a city such as Colossae, and its carrier is eager to gather the local Christians together for a reading of the letter. They need to hurry because the Laodiceans and says, have also received a letter, and Paul wants them to exchange the letters so they can both benefit from these epistles. 
In order to be sure that they retain a copy after they have exchanged letters, one of the elders hastily enlists a literate member of the local group of Christians to grab some papyrus and write down the letter as it's read aloud. There's a book back there called Books and Readers in the Early Church if you're interested. He finds sheets of papyrus that have been uh, gathered, folded, and bound into a codex. It's Latin for a small book. At the let, as the letter carrier reads Paul's correspondence to them, the scribe furiously transcribes the letters using a number of different standardized abbreviations so that he can keep up with the pace of the reading. Those are called nomina sacra, and there are other abbreviations scribe used. Moving forward a number of years, we enter what looks like to be a scriptorium. This is a room where manuscripts are regularly copied, usually located in a monastery. There are two monks in a small room, and one is about to start reading from the biblical books that the scribes, plural, are working on. So a reader would get up and read the text, and there would be scribes in the room, and sometimes they would copy down what he was saying. Other times they had a forlage or text in front of them, and, and they, would, they would copy it. But this is what happened in the Middle Ages. He is not writing down words that are being read out by another monk. Instead, he has his own papyrus book beside him on a desk, and he is copying this text into his parchment book made of prepared dry skins. He carefully keeps one hand on the complete manuscript and then attempts to copy what he sees in the blank one. He is careful not to skip a line or even a letter as he moves his eyes back and forth between the two. When the monk taking dictation is done, the monk who did the reading comes down to check the work that the scribe has been doing. Similarly, the scribe who is working on his own manuscript carefully counts the numbers of rows and so forth and so on. And then there were artistic scribes that would come down and put colophon on there with corona. Uh, they would have marginalia, all kinds of designs. It's a fascinating study. So, let me uh, just walk through this. We're going to go from Paul to Erasmus, from Erasmus to Nesselalon a survey of type of ancient witnesses, and then some numbers. What is a manuscript? A manuscript is anything from the size of a stamp to a credit card to a whole book that was written sometimes uh, from the first century up to the 16th century, maybe uh, 100 years after the printing press. But the printing press was in the 16th century, so there was, uh, took a while before everybody was using them. Papyra. Papyra looks like a stalk of corn. It's just something that grew in the Nile Valley. It was a reedy thing. They would take the pith out of it, make strips of it, kind of like gauze. It looks like gauze. They would run them horizontally, vertically, paste them together, and make books out of them. So uh, here's a picture of, of papyrus. It looks kind of like, uh, I don't know, cane or whatnot. But uh, that's how they made books for antiquity. So the Jews were people of the scroll, right? And by the time of the New Testament, that, that model is fading out. And so Christians were some of the earliest bookmakers, as a matter of fact. They were people of the book, and so they made these papyrus books, and they used different kinds of ink and writing materials. Papyrology as a whole, anything I say this morning, any sentence I utter has tomes of scholarly work about it. Literally, I'm not exaggerating. Any sentence I utter this morning. Here is a, here's a good example of a, of a papyrus book. Notice you can see here, see there how they glued two pieces of sheets together? So they had folios, they had pages, and there was the recto, the front, and the verso, the back side. So they would write on the front and back of these texts. That's a papyrus manuscript. So going back to Porter's story, here, here are actual copies of those words from P46, which is uh, 175 to 225, where Paul says, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hands. Sometimes he wrote himself. Here's a copy of Romans 16 from the 3rd century. I, Tertius, that's, that's Paul's uh, secretary, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. 
Colossians 4. Here we go. And when this letter is read among you, hey, read it to other people. Share this stuff. There's the evidence. P46. Again, a very old papyrus manuscript. It's right there. Majuscal manuscripts. That's just a fancy word for manuscripts that are written with capital letters. Let me just say a word about how writing was done in antiquity, particularly in the New Testament era, even up until the 8th century or 4th, 5th century. Capital letters, no spaces, no paragraphs, no versification. Right? It's they all, all the words ran together. So this is part of the business of textual criticism. Textual criticism is just trying to reconstruct the original text. And I'll have more to say about that in just a moment. Verses after about the 7th or 8th century on up to the invention of the printing press, the minuscule hand, the, the, the cursive hand. I have an example of that back there where they wrote in lowercase cursive letters. Each scribe had their own anomalies. Each scribe had their own handwriting, kind of like yours. They were no different. They were just humans. They got tired. They made mistakes. They got candle wax on their manuscripts. They doodled in the margins. They had their own side notes. You know, they had funnies, whatever. They were just human. All right, now the great, the great old manuscripts that we have of the entire New Testament, I'm going to show you a few of those. This is from uh, the 4th century. This is the oldest manuscript of the, of the Bible, Codex Vaticanus. I'll say more about its founder in just a little bit. And the reason is, usually these things are not named by the provenance, that is where they came from, but they're named by, by where, they, where they are housed. So this is in the Vatican Library since the 15th century. Oftentimes we don't know exactly, but this is a so-called Alexandrian, probably some, some, uh, a manuscript from, from Egypt. So it has half of the Old Testament, some of the Apocrypha, the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and then some early Christian texts not found in modern Bibles. And I can take some questions about that. There's some interesting things about these old manuscripts separating the Gospels, the Epistles, the general epistles, and separating also the non-canonical books by different, different methods, different means. Uh, this is an interesting codex, uh, Aphraim Rescriptus of the 5th century. And the reason I'm putting this up here is because a, a palimpsest manuscript is a manuscript that a scribe would take and they would wash it. They would wash the original off of it. Uh, oftentimes with lemon juice. And then they would, because paper was so expensive and writing materials were so precious and so rare, if they had something they really wanted to copy, they would, they would uh, scrub it, they would wash it, and then copy back over the top of it. So this one was washed in the 12th century. It, it had 38 treaties composed by Ephraim the Syrian, a prominent theologian of the 4th century. And there's a picture of it. It's fun trying to read that stuff. <laughs> All right? Codex Allens and Drinus, a 5th century manuscript of the Bible, one of the earliest and most complete manuscripts containing the majority of the Septuagint and the New Testament. You can actually go see these things in the British Library. Some of, a lot of these things are on public display, and I'll share a couple of websites with you where you can see digitized copies of this. I mean, things have changed in the 23 years since I've done much with this. Uh, here, uh, I talked to you about the Greek minuscules. That's just a $64 word for saying lowercase. Uh, th th we have, uh, it was, it was a, a book hand in Byzantium, which is the majority of our text. The majority of the New Testament texts we have are, are so-called Byzantine text or majority text or these uh, medieval minuscules. That's, that's the majority text, but they're not necessarily the oldest text. 
Uh, this is a personal copy of mine. This is, I worked with this uh, back in 1996. I collated the first 10 chapters of it, did a, a write-up of the, the way it was made as a book, and did a total description of it, um, copied the, figured out the ligatures of the scribe. A copy is that back there. You can see some of my notes and doodlings in the margin. But that's, that came from a four-gospel manuscript, literally, I put my hands on, worked with for a month. Fascinating stuff. By the way, this place had Eberhard Nessel's library. I'll say about, a little bit more about him. But to see the industry and the scholarship and these, these guys that put these, that put these things together, they, they are phenomenal in what they know. The breadth of their knowledge and the skills they have in Coptic, Syriac, Armenian, Greek, you know, it, it's amazing. Uh, here, here's more of an example of illuminated manuscripts. I mean, these things get really ornate. They're fascinating. There's a whole discipline that just studies this. Uh, just, just catechology, ancient bookmaking. There are people, David Daniel, for example, a guy I spent a few days with when I was doing this kind of stuff. He could spend four hours talking about a, a, a gospel manuscript and never get to the text. What kind of material was it? What, what kind of ink was it? What were the scribes? I mean, it just, it's, it's, it's mind-blowing the depth of what you can go into on this. Here's some examples. I don't know if you can see those ligatures. That's the scribe. That's my, that's my copy of the scribe. And then here's the Greek letters of today. And what you do, you take one of those manuscripts and you take a copy of Erasmus's Texas Receptus for those Latin scholars. I just say Texas Receptus. And what you do when you collate a manuscript is you're looking and you're comparing it, and I'll say more about Erasmus in a minute, you're comparing it to the received text of Erasmus, that 16th, 17th century text that Stephanus, uh, Robert Estine revised, the Elzevir brother revised, the basis of the King James, and, and every manuscript is correlated and compared to this standard text, and you make notations of the difference. That's how it works. So let me, get, let me just run you through a brief history of the printed editions. This is complex. This is amazing scholarship. You don't really care about it. It's technical. Again, I just want you to feel the kinds of care and the kind of industry and the work that has gone into this before technology, before copy machines. This was done by hand, folks. This tedium was done by hand. Lexicons and grammars and manuscript. It's, it's, it's amazing. The first one we have is the, the, the Complutensian polyglot, polyglot that had several versions. This is actually before Erasmus's text, 1514. So that's the first printed edition of the New Testament. And it had Hebrew, Aramaic, Greek, and Latin text side by side here. It's called a Complutensium Polyglot. The Pope would not approve it, and so therefore it wasn't published until after Erasmus published his third or fourth edition. And so, but yet it was ready to go. It just uh, the, the church wouldn't let it wouldn't let it loose because they just wouldn't let it loose. So uh, I'm going to run you through from Erasmus, who really is kind of the point of departure for modern uh, Greek. Greek New Testaments. Uh, you can see here, here's Erasmus's text. On the left is the Greek. On the right is the Latin. Again, no versification. And this is typeset, right? This is an amazing amount of work, hand-setting this for a printing press in the 16th century. All right? This is compared to Nestle Alain. Now, here's the thing. A lot of people say, well, the scriptures have been changed. There's a, hundreds of thousands of variants. There are. They're right. That's not a lie. There are hundreds of thousands of textual variants. And I'll talk about those in a minute. But guess what? Right there they are. You can look at them for yourself. 
the marginalia, and that's not all of them, but that, that is, this is the critical edition of the New Testament today that has the evidence in it. If you want to see the evidence, and you can read Latin, Greek, Syriac, and all kinds of signs and sigla, have at it. It's tough. There he is, uh, Desiderius Erasmus, Erasmus of Rotterdam. He had uh, five editions of the so-called Texas Receptus. And what he was working with, of the 5,700 manuscripts we know about from this Byzantine era, these, these mid-middle-age manuscripts, he only had a handful. That's all he had. We have 5,700 today, parts of the New Testament. But that's really the standard uh, that the church received for many, many years. Then I, I mentioned Stephanus. Uh, he published four editions. It basically was a takeoff on Erasmus's text. The first three were published in Paris. Uh, roughly, it was taken from the Complutensium and Erasmus's text, but he did have 14 other manuscripts Erasmus didn't have. So we see this, this period of textual criticism, people starting to compare the evidence with what we have, right? And starting to put together what would become later known as an eclectic text. The Texas Receptus is based on one textual family. The modern critical edition that's back there, and I've got several versions for you to look at, are called an eclectic text, where it takes into account all the evidence of Greek manuscripts, Syriac, Coptic, the church fathers, lectionaries, all kinds of evidence it takes into account. And it's amazing that that eclectic text, after all that evidence, doesn't vary a whole lot from that one right there. It does. And if you compare the manuscripts, the handwritten manuscripts amongst themselves, but when I say variants, you're going to be shocked at what's counted as a variant. The Elsevier brothers, uh, famous printers, uh, they were known for their uh, thoroughness and precision and whatnot. They... Uh, continued in the TR tradition, and really, this is what the real TR was. It's the text now received by all. There's the Latin thing they put in their preface. So if you got somebody that uh, believes, you know, it's one of these, I used to have fun with these King James only people, they, yeah, we're, we're Rasmus's text. That's, that's the one we like. Well, which edition? Well, I didn't know there was another. Are you sure? And there actually were three more people that added to the Greek New Testament even after Erasmus. So the King James is based on this, not really Erasmus's New Testament. Uh, Theodore Beza, he uh, took Calvin's place at Geneva. Theologian, also a textual critic. Uh, he began to put annotations in his New Testament. Here are some of the, the, the big uh, manuscripts he worked with. And it was a, a little bit different than Stephanus's edition. John Mill... Uh, John Mill worked on this for 30 years. He found about 30,000 discrepancies uh, amongst the manuscripts and then died two weeks before it was published, his, his New Testament. It's an amazing work. By the way, all these old editions of the Greek New Testament are still useful today and scholars still use them. An amazing contribution. I got too many gizmos here. John Albert Brindle, his uh, Novum Testamentum Graecum, 1734. He began to divide manuscripts into families. I talked about the Alexandrian, Caesarean, Syrian, uh, Byzantian, and so forth and so on. J.J. Uh, Greisbach, uh, again, now we start seeing them comparing Greek New Testaments and, and additions to one another and start doing their text-critical work. <clears throat> Carl Lachman, uh, 
first one who broke with the so-called Texas Receptus, and, and so we see more of this whole, when I say critical, I don't mean like destructive critical. I just mean, you know, rigorous study and comparison. It, that, that, it's, not a bad, it's not a pejorative thing. Uh, Constantine von Tischendorf, what an amazing, amazing guy. This guy uh, published the text of Codex Sinaiticus, one of our great uncial manuscripts. He had a, a, a big critical edition of the New Testament. Uh, it was Tischendorf's eighth edition and the most important published between these years here. And you remember that palimpsest I showed you a while ago, the one that they washed? He was the one that deciphered that behind it. And by the way, Whereas they used to use chemicals to wash them so they could get behind what was originally written, now they have this high-resolution high photography because this used to destroy these manuscripts. These chemicals used to destroy them, but, but now they have, they have technology where they can actually see through the, 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 the top layer of writing down to the, what was actually there. It's fascinating stuff. Dan Wallace is doing some of this. Uh, this really became the first sort of modern critical edition of uh, West Cotton Hort's 1881 edition. And this, this became the basis then for some of the modern translations of the Bible. This, this we began to see a slow move away from a fixed static text like the Texas Receptus into, again, a more eclectic text. And that brings us to, to uh, the, the New Testament we use today, the critical edition used in all uh, academic circles. It's the Nestle Alon or Nestle Alon text. Uh, and, and, and unlike some of these editions where it's Tischendorf or Graysbach or Erasmus or single individuals, uh, Eberhard Nestle did start as one guy, and then Erwin Nestle, his brother, took on after he died, and then Kurt and Barbara Alon became the editors. But now it's textual criticism done by a committee. And so there are these canons of textual criticism that they use. They look at external evidence. They look at internal evidence. And so as a committee then, they decide on what actually goes into the text of the Bible. But everything else goes in the footnotes. So you can see the decisions they made. You can't be much more objective than that. There's a picture of him. <laughs> uh, here's Kurt Alon. He and his wife then uh, took up this, uh, this project. Uh, it's now currently in its 28th edition. I have a 22nd edition, a 23rd edition. I have a Greek and German side-by-side -side in your linear. I have a, a large print one for when you get older, you have to be able to see. I have uh, several of them back. It, this, is this, is, this whole story here alone, there, there are books written on the story of the making of the Nestle Alon. It's in its 28th edition now. Okay, uh, there you go. I already said all English Bible. Real quickly, uh, Wycliffe didn't have, Greek, didn't have Greek manuscripts. He had the Vulgate. He had uh, Jerome's Vulgate. That's what he translated the, the English Bible into. By the way, there were some, there were some English editions, 7th, 8th, 9th centuries, pieces of English. I don't know what kind of English you call that, but there are some texts from that era before Wycliffe. Actually, uh, Ger uh, Luther's 1517 edition there were 17 different German editions before Luther published his based on Rasmus's New Testament. High and low German editions. From the 8th century, we see the hoi polloi, the masses, wanting to read the Bible in their own language, not the language of scholarship of Latin and Greek. So, uh, again, here's a quick listing. Uh, again, all these have an amazing history behind them. I challenge, you know, pick something out and, and go for it. Uh, 16, King James Version, 
You know, you can also pull one of these out. You know, I used to carry one of these with me for these, because there's a lot of King James only people inside. I'd just whip one out and turn it to Ezekiel and say, what does that say? It's kind of snarky. <laughs> primary sources. What are the primary sources for this thing of reconstructing the original text? Well, we've got the Greek text of the New Testament itself. I've showed you some of those manuscripts. I've shown you those. We have other ancient versions of, of the New Testament, right? We have the church fathers. By the way, interesting statistic. statistic. I'm sorry, I, my diction is terrible. I'm just, my mind's going way faster than my southern accent will let me say. If you were to compile all the citations of the church fathers in one book, it would be tantamount to four Greek New Testaments. And there are over 130,000 words in the Greek New Testament. That's amazing. They didn't have the King James Bible. They didn't have Erasmus. We know from the church fathers, what were they They were citing Greek manuscripts, putting it in their writings. This is early stuff. And, and, and what's fascinating is when you read a citation from a father and you look at a manuscript and they go, wow, those are Greek. Fun stuff. Ancient lectionaries. You guys know what a lectionary is? A lectionary is like a, a liturgical handbook. And in these lectionaries, they would put the, the, the gospel reading, the Old Testament reading, the New Testament reading. Where, where did they get those from? They did they got those from Greek manuscripts. And there, it's, it's Greek in a lectionary that was read in the church. Right? That's, that's powerful evidence. <clears throat> so, uh, here's some of the ancient versions. I mean, you, you, you just think about Greek, but that's not all there is, folks. Here are, here's, here's Jerome's Latin from the 2nd century. We've got 8,000 of those. The, the Syriac, the Diatessaron, that's an old source, very old. Some manuscripts from 350. Um, here's, here's some 5th century manuscripts. I mean, and it, it's just amazing. And then and there's a whole corpus of scholarship about each one of these. You know, scribal tendencies, kinds of books, what does it say, textual variation, blah, 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 blah. It's just on and on and on. The four Egyptian dialects we have the New Testament in. We know about Coptic, that's pretty, you know, we're pr pretty familiar with that. But there's Sahadic, Baharic, and Middle Egyptian. All throughout ancient antiquity in Egypt, there were colloquial translations of the New Testament from Greek. Other ancient versions, tons of them. And all this becomes part of the story of how we got our Bible from the Greek New Testament. All right, by the numbers. This is what you wanted, right? You wanted some evidence? Here we go. All right. The New Testament has been preserved in more manuscripts than any other ancient work of literature with over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. That's the original language. 10,000 Latin, 9,300 in various other ancient languages, including Syriac, Slavic, Gothic, Ethiopic, and so on. 25,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. There are nearly 2,500, or sorry, 2,500 pages of the New Testament remaining from ancient and medieval worlds, 
which are scattered across the globe in more than 250 libraries, institutions, monasteries, and private collections. These handwritten documents are the foundation for determining the original words of the New Testament and understanding the history of how the text was copied over the centuries. 2,500,000 pages. This was produced in antiquity, not with computers. Amazing. All right, let's look at uh, the New Testament. I mean, it, it's just embarrassing almost. It really is. Here's some comparisons. Look at the oldest copy of Caesar, 900. That's 1,000 years between him and the original. We've got stuff going back within a few decades. Plato, I'm not going to go. I mean, you can read. Just look at, there's the author. There's when they are written. Here's the earliest extant copy. Here's the, I mean, this one, look at here. 25 years between when it was written and the earliest copy we have. Look at the numbers, 24,000. Seven. We got seven. And the thing about it is that it's so frustrating. It's just like any area, other area of hard science. Boy, you show, them a, you show them one of these right here, that's it. Boy, that thing's right. There's no problem with that. This, it's accurate, right? Show them a New Testament. Ah. Worldview. Here's uh, one of the oldest ones we have. This is the John Ryland's, uh, in the John Ryland's uh, library, Papyrus P52. It's, uh, it's a part of the so-called St. John fragment. Ladies and gentlemen, that was somebody's Bible. That was some church, some community, somebody. As a matter of fact, in, in early Christianity, they were even little miniature New Testaments, copies of the gospel, maybe uh, some of Paul selected. They would scribe little, little tiny New Testaments, personal copies. That's amazing. Now, what kind of textual variants do we have? Most of the variations are not significant, and some common alterations include the following. Deletion, rearrangement, repetition, called didography. These all have scholarly names, uh, didography, uh, parablepsis, blah, 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 blah. Uh, replacement of more words when the copyist eye returns to a similar word. and lies, That's parablepsis, look away, come back. I do this all, I do it on my computer. It's just human nature. They got tired. Can you imagine standing up at a table all day long copying a manuscript or sometimes here's what they would do they would sit in their lap and they would they would do it in their lap that's fatiguing you try to copy a paragraph in english so many mistakes you make you can't even type without making mistakes you got word processor spell correction if their eye skips to an earlier word they may create a repetition called didography if their eye skips to a later word they may create an omission uh they may also replace some text of the original with an alternative reading. Uh, spelling, spelling is a big one. Uh, a diphthong versus not having a diphthong. Uh, all kinds of stuff. And I'm not going to bore you with all that stuff. Now, this is something Dan Wallace I learned from him. <laughs> In Greek, ha Jesus agapa te Maria. Jesus loves Mary. Guess how many ways you can say that in Greek and never change the ending, never change the meaning. 
Dan Wallace sat down and spent eight hours on this project, and he, come up, he came up with 343 different ways to say Jesus loves Mary, and here's why. Because that never changes. You can change that word order in any way you want to, and it's going to say the same thing. You can have an article here and an article here. That's an article, that's an article. Or you can take them away. That says the same thing with or without the article. 343 different ways he wrote this. And he said, there, and there are even more, more ways to do it. That is a major textual variation when you say the same thing in a different way. Doesn't change the meaning. I like what he says. When you look at this evidence, and, and I've just scratched the surface, folks. I'm no expert on any of this stuff. I just read people who are and throw some stuff together. We have an embarrassment of riches. I got too many gizmos here. I found this little colophon from a scribe. The hand that wrote this is rotting in the grave, but the words here written will last until the fullness of time. New covenant, folks. This is what it was about. When Jesus came, that was, that was uh, the fulfillment of Jeremiah 600 years before then. And all this stuff, all this stuff is part of that new covenant promise. Bruce Metzger. Uh, I'm going to wait and see if you have questions about that. So, anyway, I'm yours. That's it. That's kind of a quick sprint. Anybody have questions? You got uh, 10 minutes? Yes. manuscripts of the New Testament right? and someone like Bart Ehrman comes along and says look there's uh, millions of, of aberrations or of, of you know differing there are, uh, there are, disagreements. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands. Yeah, there's a yeah lot. give us an example like run us through you know there's of what that would look like what he's counting because if a if hundred manuscripts contain a, a word in a verse and it's all spelt the same way mm -hmm. But then three of them, someone mis misspelt the word because two letters look the same. Mm -hmm. I mean, give us some, help us with how ridiculous that number sounds relative to the weight of what, what the right. difference actually amounts yeah, to. Yeah, I, I think I understand what you're saying. So, some of these scribes did, in fact, harmonize or rescind a text. In other words, they would be reading something they had in front of them. They may be aware of a different tradition, and they may change something slightly. They also were inclined, and this is one of the textual canons called the harder reading is preferred. They also were inclined to fix grammatical mistakes and those kinds of things, what they construed to be grammatical mistakes. So you've got things like word order. I mentioned the, the nomina sacra. You know, there are 15 of those, Jesus, man, God, Lord, uh, Savior, where they would use the first capital letter of the word and the last capital letter of the word and draw a line over it as opposed to spelling it out, Jesus. That's a major variant, right? So uh, any sort of, sometimes, uh, for example, uh, neuter plural subjects take singular nouns. Okay, that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of anomaly of Greek grammar. Well, you know, they may or may not honor that. 
And so a lot of these things that we look at grammatically is really, in my opinion, is a a prescriptive way of the the way Greek ought to have been written. I'm talking about style and grammar now. Modern linguistics doesn't look at language that way. Modern linguistics observes how people use the language and then they they draw conclusions from that. It's not as prescriptive. Old Latin and Greek uh, comparative philology had these kinds of hardened rules they would look at. So none of those things bother me. It's just the way we do it as human beings in, in our communication. So, you know, variations. I mean, major two, let me talk about the two big ones. That's the ending of Mark, for which there are five different endings. There's a shorter ending, and then there's variations of a longer ending. And then there's the so-called pericopi adulteri, John 7, 53 to 8, 11, the story of the woman taken in adultery. Those are not in the older, oldest manuscripts we have. But I'll tell you something, and this is what's fascinating about that manuscript, right back there on that table that I have copies of. It doesn't have it either, and it's a 13th century manuscript. It's not after Luke. Sometimes it's after Luke. Sometimes it's not there. But most of the time in the majority text, it's there, the woman taken in adultery. And so to take, to take and say that's not a part of God's word, that's really bothersome to some people until you start thinking about it. Well, so here was Bruce Metzger's take on that. Probably it was originally in Luke. Luke couldn't write everything he had to say, and that was one story that didn't go in there. Although it's not canonical, Metzger thinks it's certainly historical. The longer ending of Mark, we wouldn't have snake handlers and all that kind of stuff if it weren't put in there. And the writer, the, the scribes who read Mark, because he didn't have an instance of the resurrection appearance of Jesus, he thought he would needed to put some more stuff in there. But if you read the book of 2 Chronicles in the Old Testament, here's the analog to the ending of Mark. A lot of times, story writers don't tell us everything, right? 2 Chronicles leaves us with a totally unfinished story of the history of ancient Israel. Why? Because the story wasn't done. Well, there's, there's a certain amount of suspense when you leave a narrative open. And so I prefer the shorter ending of Mark because, why? Scribes had a tendency to add and embellish rather than take away. Shorter reading is preferred. And this is, the, this is the characteristic we find in the older manuscripts. As time goes on, there are obvious additions and you know, so forth. So, I mean, the kind of things that, that Airman worries about is not... I mean, for example, he and Dan Wallace wouldn't, wouldn't disagree on much of anything in terms of the evidence. It's the interpretation of the evidence that they have big disagreements on. And, of course, his orthodox corruption of Scripture, he claims that there was, you know, these orthodox scribes were correcting certain heresies and four different heresies, and you can read them back there. They have long names, you know, anti-docetic, anti the suffering of God. You know, that's kind of, you know, uh, some people believe that God literally died on the cross, and so you have orthodox scribes fixing that, fixing the fact that Jesus was a phantom. So... But the the thing about it is, although they may have theologized sometimes, that is certainly the exception. And the reason I showed you the Nestle-Alon text, you can see where they did it for yourself. So, was that good enough? You're not reading the original text. All we have is copies of copies of copies of copies. But here, here's, here's, let you me, know what let me I'm do asking, it this way. though. 
Let me do it this way. The lowest estimate of any critical scholar, and and Airman is even better than this, I think, is the 80% certainty that we have the New Testament. Most people would take that, even critical scholars, 90% and above. And I heard Dr. Metzger say out of his own mouth, sitting in a seminar with him, that we have pretty good evidence that we have 99% of the New Testament. And here's what he said. If you took those readings which were not only viable and significant, so there's viable, there's significant. So you have readings that are non-viable, they're probably not in the original, therefore insignificant. You have readings that are viable that were in the original and they are significant. Dr. Metzger said they would fill a half a page of a Greek New Testament. Heard it out of his own mouth. And he was Bart Ehrman's teacher. So, what else? Does that sound like I'm mad at you? <laughs> I'm, just, I'm sorry. I, you know, Austin, if, if I were to sit down and show textual variants, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, I'll be happy to show you personally. about the, the, the translations we have because we are uber confident about the original text, even though we don't have the original manuscripts, right. we are super confident about what the Word of God said on the day when it was written because we have because of the, the science of textual criticism. And so no, I just want to make would, sure you, you get your that. pitch I mean, for that to come across that, that we can know. Yeah. And I've heard the number 99.9, we actually have like 100... 0.01% of the New Testament because yeah. scribes would add a blip here or there. So here, here's, here's, a late, here's a pretty recent book on this subject. Not a lot's changed in the 20-something years I've fooled with this. Some, not much. Uh, Stan Porter, he's the one that gives the numbers of, I mean, 80 to 90% is low. However, let, let's think about this theologically. Everybody works with the same evidence. Bart Ehrman, Dan Wallace, two, two, two ends of the spectrum. It's a matter of your presuppositions about the nature of that evidence and what does it mean. That's the next question, and that was not my burden here today. My burden was to show you the evidence. But, but there's, there are plenty of reasons if you're looking for one. And, and this is why I think we go, go back to Calvin. How do we know that the Word of God is the Word of God? It's the testimony of the Holy Spirit. Same way you know bitter is bitter and sweet sweet and day from night. That's a supernatural view of the text. And I think if you take Jesus seriously, how much better could a Christian do than what Jesus did? Right? Matthew 5. Not one jot or one tittle, not, not the smallest Hebrew letter or the part of a Hebrew letter shall pass from the law until all this is fulfilled. Everywhere the New Testament talks about the Old Testament, it, talk, it talks about its authority. And I just don't know how we can do better than Jesus. And if you have to have evidence like if you need can you imagine what the church would have done jesus never wrote a word never told anybody to write anything none can you imagine look at what the church has done with the shroud of turin look at what they do with relics can you imagine if we had an original right it's not about that per se all we know about jesus is what we have here but it's about jesus right and this is all inspiration whatnot let me say a quick word about the canon uh let me give you dr metzger's uh three three reasons why something made it into canon versus something else the regular theta the rule of faith that's basically orthodox 
apostolicity, apostolicity or close associate. Uh, usage by the church at large. This is my favorite one, folks. It's consensus. Now, let me give you some theology. A book is not inspired because it's in the canon. It's in the canon because it was inspired. When was Paul's letter to Rome in the canon? As soon as it got on that papyrus. Just like the standard model of quantum mechanics. The first particles were found in the late 19th century. There was a hundred and something years until 2012 until the standard model, the Higgs boson, was found at the Large Hadron Collider that completed the standard model of particle physics. Leptons, quarks, neutrinos, up quarks, down quarks, blah, 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 blah. Let me ask you a question. When were they in the standard model? When they got created. Same thing. It's canonical now because they recognized it. Physicists have recognized this is it. It's closed. We found them all, they think. They really don't know. Matter of fact, all they are are the mathematical expressions, what they think they know. And that's a whole other conversation. But there's an analog for you of canonicity. These three, three criteria, orthodoxy, apostolicity, apostolicity, and consensus among the churches for ascertaining which books should be regarded as authoritative for the church, came to be generally adopted during the course of the second century. We always look back at church councils, but there were, there were gospel collections circulating. There were Paul's letters circulating. There were general epistles circulating. They weren't codified and put together until, yeah, late, late in the fourth century, late 300s. But then again, it's, you know, either God had something to do with this or he didn't. That's what I'd say to Ehrman. Well, he, he doesn't believe that there is a God, so how could he have anything to do with this? So you have to have some sufficient reason for explaining all this evidence. I'm sitting here looking at it. How did it get here? What does it mean? Then it becomes a sociological, historical history of Christianity, history of doctrine kind of a thing, not to reconstruct the original text of the New Testament. That's the difference. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the overwhelming evidence that you have left us of your word. And Lord, we know that it's never, never enough evidence. Someone always wants more. And we know that it's our hearts. It's our hearts that ultimately are the cause of rejecting you and your son. Give us grace to believe. And as we struggle with our sin, help our unbelief. In Jesus' name. Amen.